0: A year ago, most people were cooped up trying to keep themselves occupied by making sourdough starter or binging Netflix. Alina Chan, she was trying to keep busy, too. Only Alina is a genetic engineer. So
1: scientists, when they see something strange happening, they want to study it. It's just (laughs) like
0: an, an
1: inherent characteristic of scientists is that you want to solve problems.
0: And last year, the strange thing that was happening was COVID, which meant Alina was asking herself, What could I do at home? This is how Alina began doing some of the most controversial research into the coronavirus. From her home, the same way a lot of us have been working. It all started with the virus's genetic blueprint. And so at that time, the news came out that this virus was
1: genetically stable. It was changing very little. So it looked so stable that at the time, a lot of experts said that maybe we don't have to worry about our vaccines and our uh, antibody therapies because the, the the target is so
0: stable. And this sounds like great news, but it got Alina's attention because she knows a little something about viral evolution. She'd studied SARS-1, which spread to humans back in 2003. That virus, it's so closely related to this coronavirus that some people call COVID SARS-2. If you look especially at SARS-1, which is, a, again, a,
1: the most related virus to SARS-2 in terms of human outbreaks, when you compare SARS-1 to SARS-2, it is striking that there isn't this period of rapid mutation, uh, adaptation to the host that you could see in SARS-1, but not SARS-2.
0: So with SARS-1, you could just see it, like, changing day to day, trying to figure out how to stick around its host. Uh,
1: Not day-to-day, but between patients. Based on the sequences that they got from patients at the time, you could see within the first two to three months, it was picking up dozens of mutations, like functional mutations.
0: These mutations are how a virus optimizes itself, to hijack as many human cells as possible. Each one is sort of like wiggling a key in a lock, hoping the door's going to pop open. What stood out to Alina was that it looked like this coronavirus SARS-2, it had simply been handed the keys to the human body. It wasn't having to adapt to spread, and she could not figure out why. So she typed up her findings, and at the end, she included three possible scenarios that might explain what she'd seen.
1: And the last scenario was, what if a non-genetically engineered virus was just grown in a lab and accidentally spilled? So a
0: lab leak.
1: Yeah, Unfortunately, a lot of people descended on that last phrase alone, just taking it out context of the entire preprint to just, uh, you know, have a frenzy about <laughs> scientists saying that a lab leak is plausible.
0: I have to make a bit of a confession to you, which is like I'm a little freaked out to be having this conversation. Oh, why? why are you freaked out? I feel like there's just so much back and forth on both sides about the idea that maybe this coronavirus came from a lab. People get their backs up, you know what I mean? Yeah,
1: this problem is extremely complicated and high stakes. So it's it's not
0: one that can be solved by consensus. Today on the show, Alina is making the case that you should take the lab leak hypothesis seriously. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick around. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So you published this paper back in May of 2020, like a year ago, where you said maybe we should consider the idea that this coronavirus came from a lab. At the time, what was the main theory about where COVID had come from? So at
1: the time in early 2020, I think, and even till now, the vast majority of people still think it came from this wet market. Uh, It's called the Huanan Seafood Market in Wuhan City. The reason for that was that it had been announced by uh, the Chinese government in, I think on January 22nd, that most likely this virus had come from illegally sold uh, wildlife at that market. But over time, that, that story seemed to disintegrate. And by May... 2020, uh, about two or three weeks after a paper came out, the uh, Chinese CDC director actually announced that the market was a victim. So the ma- market wasn't the site of original spillover, he said. It
0: was most likely a later cluster. Oh, so the cluster, the cluster at the wet market, it wasn't where it started.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: So where did the CDC director think it had started?
1: He didn't provide any answers. But at the time, the genetic and the epidemiological evidence did not point towards the market being the original site of uh, spillover. It didn't point to the market being the source of the virus in the uh, in Wuhan City. There were other variants of the virus, early variants of the virus, that didn't seem to pass through the market. So they seemed to precede or, or be in parallel to the market. And so that meant that a whole a whole bunch of people, a whole portion of them, at least a third of them or more, now that there's more data, didn't have any links to this market, but yet they had been uh, amongst the early cases of COVID. In fact, the earliest cases uh, did not have any links to this market. And I want to be really clear that I still think the wildlife trade is a plausible scenario. It's just that, There has been such little advocacy from the scientific community to to look into the lab leak that people like me have to push really hard on it. And that makes us look like lab origins, like advocates. So I don't know whether this came from a lab or from a, a market, but I think it's essential that we have a real investigation, a credible one, free from political influence,
0: into whether this virus could have come from a lab or from the wildlife trade. Alina's paper never claimed the lab leak was the only explanation for this pandemic just one that deserved consideration. But the political landscape last spring made even that careful suggestion radioactive in the scientific community. Back in February, Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton had gone on Fox and suggested that COVID might have been engineered by Chinese scientists as a bioweapon. China is obviously very secretive about what happens at the Wuhan laboratory. We don't know, again, where this virus originated. That's why it's so important that we at least ask the questions and get the evidence. But China continues to block our ability to ask those questions and get that evidence. And then in April, right before Alina published her paper, then-President Donald Trump said he had reason to believe that the coronavirus outbreak originated in a laboratory in Wuhan. And my question is, have you seen anything at this point that gives you a high degree of confidence that the Wuhan Institute of Virology was the origin of this virus? Yes, I have. Yes, I have. And I think that the World Health Organization should be ashamed of themselves because they're like the public relations agency for China. And this country pays them almost... All of this meant that a lot of scientists were reluctant to go anywhere near Alina's hypothesis. but to Alina, the lab leak theory seems a lot less far-fetched when you consider the lab at the center of it. Most of the questions that you and others are raising, they revolve around the Wuhan Institute of Virology, right? Yes. So what is the Wuhan Institute of Virology? It's China's first BSL-4
1: laboratory. It's a very prestigious, uh, highly funded uh, institute that studies viruses.
0: And BSL-4, that's like the highest level of international bioresearch safety. So it means you can have potentially dangerous stuff in there.
1: Yes, you, you have very dangerous stuff in there.
0: <laughs> and researchers at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, they were definitely studying viruses that look a lot like COVID, right?
1: Yes, they have the closest virus uh, genome to COVID, to, to SARS-CoV-2, and it's called RATG13. So that has its own interesting story because it's linked to these SARS-like cases from 2012 among some uh, miners in South China, and the WIB was one of the labs that followed up on those mysterious cases. They collected numerous viruses from that cave, from that mine, where the miners had sickened with a SARS-like illness. And the closest relative was from
0: that mine. And my understanding is is there was a researcher there, Shi Zhenli. She would like, literally go into caves and gather up virus and bring it back to the lab?
1: Yes. They had a lot of younger uh, scientists and uh, personnel getting crawling into the caves. These are... Extremely difficult to access, like caves. They're not. They're not like uh, tourist destinations where people can arrive by the busload and get in. So they they have to really squeeze in there and catch the bats and like sample all these thousands of bats, tens of thousands of bats over the past decade. And the bats have like sharp teeth, and <laughs> and they're in full hazmat suits. Sometimes they're in full hazmat suits. Sometimes they
0: don't wear PPE when they do these collections. That is important. Because prolonged contact with so many bats means these scientists could be exposed to whatever the bats in these caves are carrying. And any exposure could go home with them, to Wuhan. And Xi Jin that lead researcher at the Institute, she made clear the bats she studies in South China, they cannot fly as far as Wuhan. So the question is, what was the conduit?
1: for a SARS-2 virus to get all the way from South China up into Central China, where Wuhan City is. And I think this point is extremely important that Wuhan city is not in the SARS virus like spillover zone. So this lineage of viruses that resemble SARS 2 can only be found down south, like a thousand kilometers down south. Wuhan is not a place where you have millions of these viruses residing in bats and they are sprinkling onto people. Like that is not the kind of place Wuhan is. It's a very modern city. It's like one of the most modern cities in the world. (laughs) It's got this international airport that flies out to like directly to countries across every continent.
0: And then in addition, there's research from this institute showing that it's pretty rare for humans to actually be infected by bats with coronavirus. And so it was unlikely that a human got infected and got all the way up to Wuhan and started an outbreak because that's just so rare.
1: Yeah, there is this paradox that this whole program of virus hunting uh collecting they 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 say that they're trying to find the next pandemic before it finds us right they're trying to predict the next uh pandemic potential pathogen but as recently as september 2019 so like you know a couple of months before COVID 19 emerged they published a paper saying that this sort of spillover is rare and and they're talking about even south china so the, the place where the spillover zone is they're not talking about the whole of
0: china or the whole of the world It isn't just the Wuhan Institute of Virology's location that raises eyebrows, but the kind of work the lab was doing, something called gain-of-function research. Gain-of-function research involves taking pathogens and letting them evolve, or sometimes deliberately editing their genomes to make them more transmissible or deadly. For years, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, the WIV, had openly participated in gain-of-function research, some of it in collaboration with American scientists. But intelligence reports claim that privately, this research went well beyond the experiments that were publicly disclosed. And that's the other research that the State Department of the U.S. sort of
1: hinted at. They they said that they had intelligence that the WIV was engaging in secret military projects involving lab animal infections. So that whole side of research, I, I can't comment. I have not seen any of this intelligence the public-facing one, it was, I think, right at the border of what people think is dangerous gain-of-function research because they were characterizing these naturally found viruses, but they didn't think that any of these were, you know, uh, high-potential uh, human pathogens that could cause a pandemic. They thought they were just collecting bad coronaviruses and, and you know, characterizing them in the lab. Uh, it They could reasonably argue that this work was not creating more transmissible or more deadly viruses.
0: So it sounds like we don't know if they were modifying the viruses to make them transmissible. We just know from the public-facing documents, they were certainly collecting a lot of viruses. And something that they might be interested in doing would be seeing what happened when they encountered more cells.
1: Yes, I think that there's some troubling aspects of this. One is that they took down their virus database in September 2019. So they took down this database that had information describing 22,000 pathogen sequences so or samples. So I, I find that very disturbing that up till now, even one and a half years later almost, we have not gotten access to that data.
0: Um, so it looks like they're hiding something. It looks like they're hiding something. And there's one more thing we should talk about when it comes to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which is that years before COVID became what it is today, U.S. embassy officials had visited the Institute and sent warnings back to Washington saying there wasn't enough safety at the lab. Have you had a chance to look at those cables and, and kind of think about the implications there?
1: Yes, I looked at those cables. But actually, the thing that was most interesting to me was that in one of the cables, they said that China was prototyping the first global virus collection program. So then what what happened to that? Where is the prototype? And is the database that prototype? Because two years have passed. Where is their virus collection? I guess that's the question. Um, the safety issue, it's important. But it's also important to, to note that labs around the world, they all have safety issues. And it's not transparent. It's not clear which labs are having how many accidents a year. Um, so, you know, does the Wuhan like, Institute of Virology have accidents? My bet
0: is yes. Like, every lab has accidents. Just because accidents happen.
1: Yes. You can't even stop machines from having accidents. So like, you know, anyone who's had to use a printer <laughs> or a fax machine is just like, want to beat those machines up. So, it's like, not to mention humans. So humans have bad days, right? So like, even if you've been trained excessively, There are days when you're going to make accidents.
0: After the break, why some scientists may not want to solve the mystery of where COVID-19 came from. The future
1: of America is in your hands. This is not a movie trailer and it's not a political ad, but it is a call to action. I'm Mila Atmos, and I'm passionate about unlocking the power of everyday citizens. On our podcast, Future Hindsight, we take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for you and me. Every Thursday, we talk to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power and your power to change the status quo. Find us at futurehindsight.com or wherever you listen
0: to podcasts. I want to talk about something else, which is that the very first guest that we had on this show when it came to COVID was a guy named Peter Dashak from a place called EcoHealth Alliance. And he worked really closely, still does, I think, with the Wuhan Institute of Virology, including supporting the work of that woman you mentioned, she, who would go and collect viruses, which, you know, we don't know how many viruses are there, but, you know, we know that they're being collected. My understanding is that pretty much as soon as you came out with that paper where you said, Hold up, this virus is looking really different than the last virus like it, he started pushing back on what you had to say. Can you can you tell me how? Like what what was he saying? Yeah. So
1: Peter Da Sheng and Shi Jung Li. And several other uh, scientists, they know each other from many years back, since like SARS-1, since the emergence of SARS-1, because they were the team that was appointed to go find the origins of SARS-1 back in 2004, 2005. And they were the group of scientists who discovered that the reservoir of the virus, not the intermediate host, but the ultimate source of the virus, was in bats. And so that that was their story of how they know each other, how they work with each other. And, And since then, they've built this program, to hunt and sample viruses all across China, collect thousands, tens of thousands of samples, and build a virus collection. This is their mandate. uh, And it's the
0: mandate of the Equal Health Alliance to find the next pandemic before it finds us. Even before Alina's paper came out, Peter Daschek had made his stance on the lab leak hypothesis clear. In February 2020, a statement appeared in The Lancet, the prestigious scientific journal. It had 27 signatories, but it was directed by Dashak. He and his colleagues had said the science overwhelmingly concluded that this novel coronavirus originated in wildlife, and that it wasn't the product of manipulation in a lab. The letter also condemned any alternative explanations as conspiracy theory. But for all its confidence, this letter it came out early. COVID nineteen had just been named by the WHO. To Alina. It seemed a little too conclusive. So she asked Dashak to explain why he orchestrated such a strong statement. His
1: reasoning was that he just wanted to protect his Chinese colleagues. So he didn't want them to be accused of, you know, a deliberate bioweapon or anything like that. And that's why he made such a strong stand to, to say that this definitely did not come from a lab.
0: I mean, Daszak had money at stake when it came to these relationships with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. My understanding is that he actually lost funding from the NIH after the Trump administration became aware of his research. And even now, I think that the funding line was opened back up, but it's it's pretty difficult to apply for. So you can kind of understand, also from a personal perspective as a scientist wanting to do work, why you might fight. Yes, I although I think that decision to
1: withdraw funding was uh, partly political. Or, or maybe even mostly political. Peter Daszak, he tends to lose millions because when we look at this problem of, did the virus come from a lab? It's not just, that, did it come from a lab in China? <laughs> the question is, will more viruses in the future come from labs anywhere around the world? And we have all of these virus hunting programs spread out everywhere, especially in developing countries. So it's worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And it's not just Peter Daszak. It's many, many groups of scientists all draw from this money. So there's a disincentive for them to, to advocate for an investigation into lab origins because it could shift the perception of their work as life-saving, as pandemic-preventing to one that could actually result in a pandemic and in lives lost.
0: Last year, the World Health Organization convened a team to investigate the origins of COVID-19. Peter Dashak was actually one of the scientists on that team. So when the investigation report came out last month, Alina looked at it extra closely. So the WHO report was released just a couple of weeks ago. Can you just go over what it said? They considered these four
1: hypotheses of how the virus could have originated. The first was a direct from bat to
0: human transmission, so no intermediate animal involved. They said it was likely, but not the most likely. Okay, so one origin story was that it came from bats to humans. What else did the report say? So the second hypothesis was that it came through intermediate animal host.
1: And this could be something like pangolins or mink or ferret
0: badgers or rabbits. So bat bites a pangolin, pangolin infects a human. Yes.
1: So that that's their hypothesis. But the problem here is that the viruses found in pangolins are very distantly related from, to SARS-2. So the closest relatives are all from bats. So you've got like almost, I think, now maybe even a dozen bat viruses that are closer to SARS-2 than, than, than the ones from pangolins. And there's also no evidence, there's no There's no trail of animals uh, hosting SARS-2-like viruses that leads to Wuhan. So they've they've tested, I think, something like 50,000 or more samples of animal samples across China. And they found zero. Zero samples have SARS-2 in it. Zero? Yeah, zero. So they've, they've tested across more than 30 provinces And tens of thousands of animal samples, including farms and markets and uh, wildlife breeding centers. And they have not found any SARS-2. So that seems like an unlikely scenario. What were the other theories? So two more. So the the lab leak was the next one. And they classified it as extremely unlikely. It
0: was the least likely, in their opinion, of all the theories.
1: Yes. But they, they left the door a crack open. So they said that if in the future any evidence arises to suggest a lab leak, then they can go investigate.
0: So evidence first, and then they'll investigate.
1: Yeah. The problem is that there's no evidence for animal spillover. So I, so I
0: think there's a little bit
1: of a bias towards animal spillover uh, hypothesis here in, in their report.
0: So this is the only theory that they're saying we need evidence before we investigate. Yes. <laughs> Was there one more theory? Yeah, yeah, and this is
1: the best one. <laughs> so this is the uh, frozen foods theory that, that the virus originated from a frozen meat package or a fish package that was uh,
0: imported into Wuhan.: But they've found no animals who had this virus. Yes,
1: they didn't find any animals that had this virus, so the question is, where would such an outbreak have been amongst animals that went undetected? except for just in Wuhan. So was there a farm that was specifically only serving Wuhan that was sending these frozen meats up to Wuhan?
0: So this sounds like a a mess. And even the head of the WHO has said the lab leak theory was not assessed extensively enough and requires further investigation. Now we're seeing even the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, seeming to be on board with this idea, saying, you know, we have to get to the bottom of this, which is kind of interesting. It feels like a real shift to me.
1: Yes, I think that these calls for a proper investigation into origins, they're they're reaching a crescendo. So we've heard from Redfield. The former head of the CDC. Yes, uh, who was interviewed by Dr. Sanjay Gupta on CNN. And he said that his opinion was that the virus leaked from a lab. But when the former head of the CDC says that, You know, how much of his personal opinion was this something that he's seen in private and can't share with people? And we've seen the US State Department release statements about the intelligence they've seen. We've seen uh, former uh, national security advisors, uh, Matt Pottinger, speak to this, saying that he thinks that the most likely source is the lab. Uh, We've seen uh, a bipartisan bill now, I think, in the Senate asking for a full report. From U.S. intelligence and sector of state and uh, sector of HHS on on the origins, so there are more and more people starting to say we need to put all the information in front of us and see whether this came from a lab or from nature.
0: Can I ask a really basic question? Which is like, some may say this is just a big blame game. Like the pandemics happened, we should focus on what comes next rather than how we got here. What would you say to someone? who said that?
1: We are focusing on what's coming next. So (laughs) this is not going to be the last pandemic ever. And and the problem is that even even the people who believe that this pandemic had natural origins are saying that we've entered an era of pandemics. And even Dr. Fauci has said that. So he said that we've entered an era now where there are so many human to wildlife interfaces that these pandemics are going to get more and more frequent. And I'd say that lab and research activities that handle these
0: dangerous pathogens, they're also increasing. So, um, so there are going to be Wuhan Institutes of Virology all over that country.
1: Yes. Every country is ramping up on these activities as well. And there is a risk of a lab leak, of lab leaks from these institutes, no matter how well-trained they are, no matter how high-tech and how BSL-4 leveled up they are, there's always a risk. And when you have that many, when you have hundreds of these institutes, then the risk is a hundredfold. So I think it it's a conversation we need to have. Do you think we'll ever know what happened here? Yes, I think we will. Yeah. Really? Why? Even if not in the next few years, I, I believe that in, in the next few decades, when, when people look back, when they have enough technology in the future to analyze all of the data that is available now, that's on the internet, whether it's like genomic data, whether it's uh, emails, they will find the origins. So it, it might have to be, you know, in, in 50 years, someone would do a thesis on this, plowing through all of the, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of emails and phone calls and things like that. They might have to do that. And intelligence, uh, and they will have to go through all of the data from different countries. They, they can probably find the origins.
0: Alina, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Alina Chan is a postdoctoral fellow at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. And that is the show. What Next is produced by Alina Schwartz, Daniel Hewitt, Davis Land, Carmel Dalshad, and Mary Wilson. We are led by Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery. And I am Mary Harris. I'll catch you back here tomorrow.